Good morning, church. I want to praise the Lord that of all the things you could have chosen to do today, you chose to come here and brave the elements, and I'm very grateful for that. We are two weeks away from beginning a focused period or season in the life of our church that we're calling Experiencing God Together. And during those eight weeks, those eight Sundays, we are expecting, looking for, praying for certain things to happen. And I felt that it was really important and felt led this morning to talk just about some questions that I believe a, an intense period of time like that raise and questions that need to be answered. I want to title this this morning, Why We Need a Move of God. Now, I could have said revival or a lot of different words, but why, why we need a move of God. And I built this around three questions that I want to pose to you this morning. And uh, they're not difficult questions, but I want to take some time with each one. The first question is this, what are we planning? What are we planning? Uh, I've sent out uh, information, we have talked about it in previous Sundays in December, but today may be the very first time that you're hearing about this. Uh, that we are from January 22nd through March the 12th on each of those Sundays, and during those weeks we're going to be doing some things together as a church. And so what are we planning to do? Well, on Sunday morning, January 22nd, uh, several things are going to happen at once that you'll notice are different right away. At 9 o'clock, we're going to all come together and go to our Bible study groups. There won't be two hours of Bible study meetings like we've been doing for the last couple of years. There'll be a single hour for our Bible study groups to meet. In fact, in your worship folder, if you have a class or you haven't been to that group for a while, that Bible study group, you'll find the location of where your class is going to be meeting. And I encourage you to take that, take it home with you. 9 o'clock, January 22nd, two weeks from today, your class has a place where they'll be meeting. I want to encourage all of you to, to, uh, to be in your class and be a part of it. We are asking our classes to continue doing what they do. Uh, and if you feel like you need to improve what you're doing, we're asking you to improve what you're doing. We want you to enjoy one another's company. We want you to study God's Word together. But we really want each of our classes, ultimately, to be places of community. Places where you have your best friends in the entire universe. Places where you know that if you need someone to come and help you at 2 o'clock in the morning in the midst of an emergency, those are the people that you can call and you know that they will come and that they will be at your side. We want our classes to become communities of people who love one another and who care for one another. And because of that, during those eight weeks, we're asking our classes to do one thing aside from their normal schedule and their normal routine. We're asking each of our classes to plan one party, one fellowship, where they on purpose come together and not only enjoy each other's company, but where they reach out and invite friends, perhaps people who have not been to church in a long time, perhaps people that say they belong to another church or they're members somewhere, but you know and I know that they haven't been there in decades, people that don't know Christ, we want to invite them to come, not to a worship service, 
not even to our Bible study. We want to invite them to come to a party that our class has together. Now, why is that important? Because your class, your Bible study group, is one of the great places in the life of our church where someone who knows nothing about the Lord, nothing about Jesus Christ, can come into the church and begin to hear and see and smell Jesus on the people around them and begin to be drawn to him. They can even get involved. They can bring something to the party. They can help out in different ways. The genius of what we have done as Baptists for over 100 years with Sunday school is that you can be a part of a Sunday school class and not even be a Christian. In fact, we would love it if more non-Christians came to our Bible study groups. It's one of the great ways that we build a bridge to a world that's dark and that's dying. And so at 9 o'clock, two weeks from now, we're going to have our Bible study groups meeting at that 9 o'clock hour. At 10.30, we're going to have a single worship service. And you'll say, Pastor, how are we going to get everybody in one service? We're just going to suck it up, buttercups. We're going to inhale. We're going to scoot in. We're going to we're going to come as close together as we can. Some of our key leaders, our deacons, have already volunteered to, uh, to go into the, the choir room. We don't want everybody to go back there, but some of our key leaders have said, we'll, we'll watch it on the screen so that we can make room for people who want to come and be a part of those services. But here's our goal. Our desire is that each one of those Sundays, we're going to study one of the realities of experiencing God. There are seven of them. And yes, this was something that originally was authored over 25 years ago by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. It is a study, but we're going to be doing it as a congregation, and we're going to be doing it in such a way that if somebody comes in on week three, and it's their very first Sunday here, and they've never been here before, they're going to hear God's word. And they're not going to feel like they've missed anything, and they, Lord willing, will want to come back. And so we're going to do it on Sunday morning, all seven realities, but they'll each be standalone Uh, studies and messages and what we want so much is that we would gain a sense as Wynn Baptist Church that we are the church and we are his church and it's not about who is here or who isn't here it's about us we are it and no one else is going to come in and fix our church no one else is going to come in and grow our church no one else is going to come in and And do all the things that you sit back and you say, gee, I think we ought to do this and I think we ought to do that. We are the church. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his heart. And as he works through us, I pray at the end of that eight weeks, we would have had such an encounter with God that we would find ourselves an entirely new experience each week when we come together. We'll know why we're here. We'll know whose we are. And we'll know what we are supposed to be doing. That'll happen Sunday mornings. On Sunday nights at six o'clock right here in the auditorium, we're going to go through this book together. Those of you who come on Sunday morning, you say, I want to take this deeper. I hear the reality that the preacher talked about that morning, but I want to take it deeper. And so we're encouraging all of you to get one of these books. They're available for $10, which is cheaper than you can get it anywhere else on the planet, I think. And, um, Brand new, brand new copy, no, no one's written in it, and uh, we want to encourage you to get one and bring it with you on those Sunday nights. Each night, we'll take it a little deeper. We're going to break up into groups, we're going to study together, we're going to ask questions together, we're going to pray together, and we'll work through this together. This, work, this workbook has five days of daily devotions that you can work through between Sundays. 
And so you'll have something you can do. It won't take you hours and hours to work through it. It'll take you just a few minutes each day. But I encourage you on Sunday nights, play hard, become part of the study, Seven Realities for Experiencing God. And then at the end of the focus, during week eight, the very last week, uh, between March 5th, March 12th, starting on Sunday morning, March 5th, we are going to begin a 168-hour prayer meeting. And you say, boy, I've never been part of a prayer meeting that lasts 168 hours. But our church will enter into it. You're going to have the opportunity to sign up for one of those hours. And more than one person can sign up for a given hour. Uh, Of course, the challenging time will be between 12 and 5. Those of you who post on social media at 2 in the morning, you'd be a great candidate to come and sign up for one of those hours. I know who you are. And, um, and so we want to take that time, and here in the auditorium, we're going to have stops set up throughout the auditorium, and you'll be able to come in and easily spend an hour stopping at each one for about 10 minutes, and, and you'll have a guided prayer experience. And we're going to be praying for one another. We're going to be praying for God to come to win Arkansas. We're going to be praying for needs that individuals have. We'll be sharing our needs, and we'll be responding to those needs for 168 hours. And so we've got a lot coming up. And it begins two weeks from this morning, and that's what we're planning. Now that's just the structure of it. Uh, That's just the laying the groundwork, laying the foundation. But we are trusting and we are asking and believing that God's gonna do so much more than just fill our heads with information Or for some of us that have gone through experiencing God, we want it to be more than just a refresher. We want it to be something that happens to Win Baptist Church and happens to us together. That's what we're planning. I have a second question for you. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? On August 1st, 2007, about nine and a half years ago, The I-35 bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota suddenly collapsed. And I think on the screen you'll see some um, video, raw video, that was taken by workers in the aftermath of that bridge collapse. Some of you may remember that. Happened just over nine years ago. A bridge in Minneapolis, an interstate highway, eight lanes wide, collapsed suddenly uh, just during rush hour traffic. Over 60 vehicles went down with that bridge, including a school bus with 63 children on it. It killed 13 people. It injured 145 people. 22 of them were children. That didn't have to happen. Warnings were given. There were inspections being made of that bridge every year just before it happened. People recognized that there were structural problems with that span that was going over the Mississippi River. They knew that there were uh, areas of rust, areas that needed to be addressed, areas that needed to be replaced. The bridge that had been built in the early 60s was carrying over twice the amount of cars that it had been originally designed to carry. It was heavier because of the decking that had been added to the bridge over the years. It was heavier than it had been designed to, uh, to bear. And so the loading on it was great, the traffic on it was great, people were issuing warnings. In fact, an employee of the National Transportation Safety Board working on his PhD 
did his thesis on all the ways in which this bridge was going to collapse eventually. All the different ways it could happen. And so it was not a total surprise when this bridge came down just over nine years ago. To fix it was deemed too costly and too time-consuming. And so they, they patched it up and they used band-aids when major surgery was what was required. The bottom line, they ignored the warning signs. We've got some warning signs that we ignore at our own peril. And there's so much that we could talk about if we talked about warning signs concerning our church and the churches that we know as Southern Baptists. Let me give you warning sign number one, and this is applied to us. I'm focused on us. Warning sign number one, we no longer understand what we are as a church. We no longer understand what we are as a church. Some of us, very few of us, think we are a denominational outpost, and our goal is to be heavily involved in all the various groups that make up our denomination. I don't necessarily even have to go to a church to be called a Baptist. I can just be known as a Baptist because of my affiliation years ago or in different ways. We can think of ourselves in that way. Church is just something I'm a member of, and uh, I'm very happy to say that I am a Baptist. We can think of church as a physical building or a place. Uh, I use that expression all the time. So do you. I'm going to church. We're meeting at church today, and we think of church as being this property, this physical location at this address. For others, church is a Sunday event. We say that church starts in 10 minutes. When does church begin? When does church begin tonight? Are we having church tonight? And we're so we think of church as a worship service or a series of services. Others think of church as a service club. Often people who are not members of the church think of it in that way. Well, a church should do this. A church should step up and take care of this particular need in our community. A we are a community service and we address social problems. Sometimes we think of church as a self-improvement strategy. That if I'm serious about changing my life, if I'm serious about quitting this or starting that, then I need to get back into church. And so church becomes my self-improvement strategy. Others of us think of church, believe it or not, as a business concern. We measure what's happening in our church in terms of our buildings, the size of them and the quality of them. Or we think in terms of baptism, strictly a number of how many people are coming in. And we think in terms of just budgets and how much money are we taking in. And so our primary metrics for whether a church is successful or not are based on certain numbers. And then sometimes we think of church as something that is mine because of my long association with it. It is my church. Uh, it is, these are my people. And we treat it as a family. Now, that's not bad unless it's an exclusive family. And we don't let others into the family. And we see churches even around us who are primarily family chapels, where to get involved in that church means that somehow you've got to get married in or plugged in to that particular family or families that dominate and run that particular church. That's a warning sign. Because all of those things are wrong. The church is not that. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is Paul talking, and the word you there is second person plural, so he's talking to everybody. Do you not know means you should know. This is something that we ought to know, something that should be a fact, something that we all agree on, something that we all understand. And what is this fact about us that we should all agree on and all understand? Well, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he, he just kind of comes in here and sits here and we come and see him once a week and then we leave? Or does that mean that if the building burned down tonight, and if it does, I didn't do it. But does it mean that if the building burned down tonight and we lost everything that is property here, everything that belongs to this congregation, would the church be gone? No. We are the church. We are it. And it is in us as a group that the Spirit of God dwells. Now, he doesn't dwell among us just to help us through hard times. He dwells among us as our king, as our Lord, as our God. And he knows everything about our situation, knows everything that you and I are facing as a group. And he is, because he is the king, he already has a mission. He already has a plan for us to pursue as a congregation. It's not a matter of what I want. It's not a matter of what an individual wants. It's not even a matter of what we would vote on and say majority rules and this is what we all want to do. It's a matter of what the king wants. He is among us as a king. Not just a little piece of motivation to get through a hard week. He has a mission for us, a purpose for us. And it is why you are here. It is why I am here. And so the warning becomes that we no longer understand what we are at church. Well, when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 3, he was writing to people who had very much did not understand what it meant to be church. As he talked to them, I see a number of things happening. And um, when they failed to operate as a people of the Spirit... There were any number of things that immediately showed up in the church in Corinth. First of all, they had all kinds of biblical information without application. We could teach about the love of God without showing the love of God. He says, I have given you milk, and I would like to give you more than just the, the basics. He said, but you're still acting like people who don't even know God. You're not applying the basics. You're not putting that information to work in your life and so there's this problem with the truth it's heard it may be agreed with it may be affirmed but it is not applied and that's what he was saying to the people in Corinth as a consequence of that there was rivalry uh, he talks about envy in chapter 3 there was fighting strife within the people of God there were divisions. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I like that pastor. I like that pastor. I listen to this pastor. And there were these divisions around personalities. 
And then there was a basic powerlessness as a consequence of that. The Spirit of God was there, but He was not in charge. The Spirit of God was there, and the Word was being spoken, but the Word was not being applied. And um, yeah, I agree with that. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Then they would go out and just attack one another and, um, and declare that that group is a problem group and my group's okay. The church is a people among whom God lives and rules and directs. The first warning sign is when we no longer understand what we are as a church. We were a people ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second warning sign. Warning sign number two. We have forgotten what it means not only to be a church, but to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? Well, in some, some places, really, they think if you're an American, you're a Christian. I mean, automatically, if you're from America, they think you're a Christian. And many Muslims think this. Or we think that a Christian is someone who's got good morals, good ethics, and uh, we think they're just a good person. And so we look at the way someone's living and say, well, that's not very Christian because they're not lining up with what we think Christians ought to do, the certain standard of behavior. And so we think someone who's a good person is a Christian. And we say that man or that woman is a good Christian man or a good Christian woman. Why? Because we see them living a certain way. And we say that that good behavior gives it away. Someone who affirms the teaching of the church or the Bible, we say that's a Christian. They believe what's in the Bible. I believe the Bible. And uh, because I believe the Bible and I'm a member of the church, then I'm a Christian. And you all know that there are many people who have known the Bible for years, who maybe have been members of churches for years, who did not know Christ and have come to know him. I've known pastors that have been saved. I've known deacons that have been saved. I've known Sunday school teachers that have been saved because they woke up one morning and they realized through the through a gift of the Holy Spirit, that they did not know Jesus. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. So here's the truth. A Christian is someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside them. That's the basic definition of a Christian. The Holy Spirit lives inside them. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Paul says, Or do you not know? There he goes again. Something we ought to know that he feels like he has to remind them at that moment. Do you not know that your body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? We read that and we say, well, that means I need to work out, eat right, and so forth. It means so much more than that. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And listen, you are not your own. You are not your own. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, you don't belong to you. You belong to someone else, and he is in charge of you. Now, you're either compliant with that, or you're rebelling against that. I don't get to make my own decisions. I don't get to decide what I'm going to be when I grow up. I don't get to decide who's in charge. He is. He is. And I don't know, when I became a believer years ago, no one really sat down and explained that to me. I did understand, and I guess the gospel, it was embedded in that, but I did understand that when I trusted Christ, I didn't belong to me anymore. I belonged to him, and I was living 
I was supposed to live to please him, not necessarily me. And so whenever I had a decision to make, I knew I needed to take that to God. Doesn't mean I always did, but I knew I was supposed to bring it to him. Lord, how do you want me to respond? What do you want me to do? What is the way forward in my life? So warning sign number one is when we forget what it means to be church. Number two is when we forget what it means to be a Christian. It's far more than just populating pews, church attendance, offerings, uh, involvement. It is so much more than that. Uh, You have workplaces, you have families, you have neighborhoods, you have homes. God has a calling and a mission for you in all those places. And it involves his possession of you as his property, as his son, as his daughter. And warning number sign, warning sign number three. Warning sign number three. And again, the question was, why are we doing this? And I think we're all susceptible to these things. But here's the third one. We are losing, dear ones, we are losing our moment in history. Multiple times I've shared the story of the people of Israel who had been delivered mightily by God from Egypt. They had seen the parting of the Red Sea every day when they got up. There was a pillar of cloud over the tabernacle representing the presence of God. And at night, if they went outside their tent, every night there was a pillar of fire, the presence of God over their tabernacle. And they came right up to the promised land. The very reason God had set them free to deliver them into a place, a land of abundance, a land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. When that majority report came back and the spies said, we can't do it. They all folded up like a bunch of cards. And they were afraid. And that generation would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God took care of them. They prayed prayers. I'm sure that God answered. Their shoes never wore out on their feet. Their clothes never wore out. They were blessed by God, provided for by God. God gave them victory in battles for 40 years. But listen, they missed the most wonderful moment that God had prepared for them. That whole generation lost it. I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of that. I don't want to miss what God has for me. Do you? And I fear we are going to miss our moment in history. And we are doing this in part for that reason. I believe God wants to use us. We are the church that is when Baptist. What are we doing? What are we doing that God has told us to do? What are we doing that God has said specifically in his word not to do? These are the questions that we need to lie awake at night praying about, particularly if you're a leader in our church family. People are dying every week without Jesus. It is way too easy to go to hell from Wynn, Arkansas. 
And dear ones, God has put us in that place where we are to be the obstacle that people need to go over, around, or under to go to hell. But it shouldn't be because we are sitting here week by week and doing nothing to reach the lost. It's too hard to go to hell from a church that's alive with the presence of God. That's why we're doing this. The third question, the final question I have is this. How can I prepare myself? How can you prepare for those eight weeks that are coming. Uh, we, are, we are at the cusp of something that I believe God's led us to. And over the next two weeks, you say, well, Pastor, what's going to happen next week? Well, next week, we have a Disciple Now weekend. We have more kids signed up to participate in Disciple Now than we have had in years uh, this next weekend, 85 students. And on Sunday morning next week, the leader of their study sessions and the worship leader for their group is going to be right here. And so you and I are going to celebrate what God is doing with our students next Sunday morning. And I hope you'll be praying for that, praying for next weekend. Pray there's no snow and ice next week. Would you please? And every Sunday that follows through March... I don't care if it happens on Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Monday, Friday, Saturday night at midnight, as long as it's clear by Sunday morning. We need it clear, dear ones. So that's what's going to happen next week. But the following week, how can you prepare yourself over these next two weeks? Well, first of all, start with the great commandment. Start with the great commandment. Go back and read that. There's several versions of it. Uh, I'm going to read the one from Mark 12. There's another one in Matthew 22. Uh, The greatest commandment according to Jesus Christ. Then one of the scribes came, Matthew 12, Mark 12, 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus, in the final days of his life, had been in a series of debates with religious leaders who were just nitpicking him to death over every little jot and tittle of of the traditions and the rules that they had made up that didn't have anything to do with the law of God. And Jesus was ripping them. He was tearing down their arguments. He was dismantling their opposition to the truth, not even realizing they had been blinded to the truth by their own tradition. And at this moment, they're coming to the end because this is the very last time any one of those guys ever asked him a question. He shut them down. What is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord. Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. Love the Lord. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so I would ask myself a couple questions. Am I loving God the way he wants me to love him? Am I holding back parts of my life? Are there decisions I give to God and a whole bunch of other decisions I never bring to God? Do I love him on Sunday, but do I love him on Monday? Do I love him on Thursday? Are there activities in my life? I do these things, and while I do these things, I really don't worry about what God thinks. I just do what I want to do. 
Am I loving God the way he wants to be loved? And then am I loving my neighbor the way God wants me to love my neighbor? He says, love your neighbor. He didn't say love your neighbor if. If they straighten up and fly right. You know, a lot of times we think, man, I could love the world if they would just be so worldly. And we're sitting here waiting for the world to get right with God. And I really think the world's waiting for us maybe to get right with God. Do I love my neighbor the way God wants me to love my neighbor? And so I would start with the great commandment. And then there's the great commission. And just take that text and read it. Think about it. Ask those questions. Let the scripture read you. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, there's more to it than that. But that's the heart of it. Go and make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Go and make disciples, what? Of all the nations. So yes, should we make disciples in Africa? Yes. Should we make disciples in South Asia? Yes. Should we make disciples up in Washington and Wyoming where we have missionaries that we love and we pray for and we support? Yes. But he didn't say make disciples of everybody outside your zip code. He said, go and make disciples. So the question I've got to ask myself, I guess first of all, is am I a disciple? Am I following Christ? Is he in charge? Is he out front? Am I consciously seeking to obey him each day? Am I a disciple? Do I have a relationship with him? Do I know him? And then am I making disciples? Am I reproducing my life and somebody else? Helping somebody else to grow in their, their knowledge of the Lord. Look, dear ones, nobody here in your present form is immortal. Everyone here, here is getting out of this deal alive. We are not going to survive physically this existence. And the moment I take my last breath, the Bible indicates, as a Christian, that I'm going to be immediately, do not stop, go, do not collect $200, I'm going to be immediately in the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I don't think that's a good time to begin thinking about the great commandment, do you? So am I making disciples? How can you prepare? Give some thought, give some time to pray over and reflect. Not for your spouse, not for your family, not for your neighbors, anybody else, but just take the great commandment and say, Lord, talk to me about this great commandment. Talk to me about my love for you. Talk to me about my love for my neighbor. Talk to me about my discipleship. Talk to me about my mission. How am I doing? Am I doing what you made me for? This life you've given me, 
Am I accomplishing what you put me here for? This new life, honestly, is a life of joy. It hurts so bad, I think, for me to let go of things in my life when I know the Lord wants me to let go of it because I hang on to it so tight and I can see it with my eyes maybe or touch it with my hands and and I don't want to let go of it because I'm really not sure that God has something better for me. And so when God brings circumstances into my life that make it impossible for me to hang on to those substitutes for joy, substitutes for love, substitutes for happiness, when he challenges those things and wants to bring the real thing into my life, it hurts so bad because he's got to peel my fingers off of that thing. And I'm hanging on so tight. And what he offers you and I is so much better, so much more meaningful, so much more wonderful than the little things we argue about and the things we hang on to. This morning, do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? A relationship with Jesus Christ begins very simply when a person comes to a place and realizes that they cannot wash away their own sin. Worse than that, they cannot change the fact that they are a sinner by their own nature. And when as I realize that I'm absolutely helpless to make myself better or to make my sin go away, I realize I can't be good enough for God. I need a Savior. Through his death on the cross, he takes away the sin that right now condemns me to hell. But Christ comes and he takes my sin away. He takes my place. He dies for me. He endures, in a sense, an eternity of hell for me on the cross so that I might not experience hell, that I might go to heaven and know the Father for all eternity. Jesus did that for me. He's a Savior. But not only that, he could take away my sin, but I need someone who's going to change me. Otherwise, I'd keep doing the same old thing over and over again. Well, then he comes through his Holy Spirit to live inside a person. That's the essence of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is he doesn't say, now look, I forgive you, go live right. He says, look, I forgive you, and now I want to come inside you, and I want to live my life in you so that you can show the world what it looks like when God's in charge of a human heart. I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And so if you have never come to Christ, put your trust in him to forgive your sin and to change your life, I invite you to do that today. There'll be pastors standing down front. We'll receive you. We'll talk to you. We'll we'll share scripture with you. You can read those passages that verify what I just said. And you can know today that I've trusted Jesus. My sins have been forgiven, and he lives in me. We invite you to come. Brothers and sisters, we are two weeks away from launching something that I believe will be one of the most pivotal moments in the life of Wind Baptist Church. I invite you to join me in picking up God's Word, particularly Great Commandment, Great Commission, and saying, oh God, speak to me. Speak to me. Show me. Change me.